Hi everybody, welcome back. Welcome to our second lecture on Southeast Asia. In this lecture we're going to take a look at the population and settlement geography as well as the cultural geography of the region. Uh, settlement in this region is relatively sparse, especially when you compare it to East Asia or Southeast Asia. Or South Asia. Migration to this region uh, by the sea has meant concentration of populations in the delta areas and the coastal areas, as you can see from our population map. Most of the population, as you can see, lives along the coastal areas, as we can see along the coast of the South China Sea. In the river valleys, and especially in the delta areas, such as the Mekong Delta here, the Shaofrei uh, Delta here, and the Irrawaddy Delta here. Uh, same is true in some of the island environments, as you can see, uh, along the coastal areas of the Philippines. And, of course, uh, Jakarta uh, is, uh, has a very large population and is very densely settled, as you can see. Um, so most of the population, as I said, lives along the uh, uh, coastlines or the delta areas and the river valleys. Um, there's been a significant migration to cities recently, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So first, let's take a look at our settlement and agriculture. Uh, as, we, as I mentioned before, this area is a rainforest area, so many of the uh, soils are very poor, uh, and this also contributes to uh, the sparse settlement, especially in the interior parts of these of the countries of Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, I, we know from looking at other rainforest regions, uh, the reasons the soils are poor is because the plant nutrients are locked up in the vegetation. Uh, so the soils lack nutrients. The rain washes the nutrients out of the soil. Uh, we also have shifting cultivation in this region, uh, and it's really well adapted to the environment in this region, uh, and uh, it's able to support uh, some of the sparse populations. Uh, other areas that are good for doing agriculture are volcanic areas, and that's actually one of the reasons why Java is so densely populated, as you can see from our map. Java contains 50 uh, volcanoes, and the soils, uh, volcanic soils are actually very rich in nutrients. Uh, and so it's very good for agriculture uh, and it has a high population density and actually on this a relatively small island we have over a hundred million people. Um, Sweden agriculture or shifting agriculture if you want to, uh, if you would prefer or we also sometimes refer to it as slash and burn agriculture. Uh, as we've seen in other regions of the world this is usually small plots, a few acres of dense tropical brush. Uh, it's cut by hand, burned to put nutrients into the soil. Uh, the people who practice this type of agriculture plant subsistence crops, that is they grow crops for themselves uh, and for their uh, uh, extended families and for their villages uh, to consume. Uh, they use, uh, they use uh, the plot of soil uh, until the fertility uh, runs out, which is usually about five years, and then the land reverts to woody vegetation. The farmers move to another area and uh, 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 repeat the process, eventually returning back to the original plot uh, maybe 10 to 20 years later, depending on, uh, uh, upon their uh, cycle. Sweden agriculture is sustainable when populations are small and stable, and we have lots of land available uh, for uh, Sweden uh, to occur. Sweden agriculture in this region is threatened. Uh, cannot support the rising populations in many places, and commercial logging decreases the land available uh, to the uh, to the uh, people who practice 
Sweden agriculture. When Sweden is no longer possible, the practitioners may turn to cash crops, including opium. And we'll talk about, we're going to talk about a place in this area called the Golden Triangle. Uh, the Golden Triangle is a mountainous area of Southeast Asia. Burma, or Myanmar, is now um, probably the world's second leading uh, producer of opium uh, that's then turned into heroin. So we're talking about um, up in this area here. And we'll take a little bit closer look at this area in a few minutes as well. Plantation agriculture began in Southeast Asia with European colonization. It's usually located on the coast for transportation. Uh, the products uh, in include uh, rice, uh, rubber, cane sugar, pineapple, and tea. Um, and so in many cases, um, the uh, Europeans uh, started these, uh, uh, particularly the rice plantations, uh, as a way, as a means to uh, feed the, uh, their workers that were working on other plantations and also working in, the, uh, in some of the mining areas of this region as well. Uh, the workers on the uh, plantations are indigenous peoples from the highlands. Uh, contract labor was sometimes brought in from India or China. And that's really how this area achieved a, lar a relatively large Chinese population uh, by, uh, first of all, either the Chinese moving into this region uh, voluntarily uh, from China as uh, China uh, experienced discord, political discord and so forth. Uh, many fled and moved into this area. And many Chinese were also brought in uh, as indentured laborers. And uh, people from India as well were also brought in as indigenous. Uh, in indentured labor. So as I mentioned, rice is grown in the lands, formerly only for subsistence. Today, rice is grown commercially uh, and it's traded and exported. Uh, actually, Vietnam is a, a very large exporter of rice. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, you'll find um, uh, commercial rice grown in places like the Irrawaddy River of Burma, the Shao Freya of Thailand, and the Mekong uh, in Vietnam. So let's uh, take a look at some of these areas. Indonesia, you can see we also grow, uh, uh, grow tea, uh, particularly in some of the higher elevations, uh, not necessarily up in the mountains, but as we move up into the foothills in the mountains, as you can see from this photograph. Uh, and of course, tea is a very valuable commodity on global markets as uh, a lot of people drink tea, especially in, um, in the UK. Uh, then we also have, this is image 13.11, is an image of slash and burn agriculture. So you can see they're burning the wood and so forth. Um, many of the transnational lumber corporations, um, you know, that don't want to take uh, responsibility for all the smoke and smog that they contribute to the atmosphere in this region, uh, actually blame the Sweden agriculturalists uh, for uh, for creating all the uh, smoke and smog. But they actually, in reality, create very little. Uh, let's look at some of the recent demographic change in this region, and we'll do that by looking at the uh, at uh, the the table here and uh, um, and looking at some of the data on the table. So most countries have seen sharp decreases in their birth rates um, recently. Uh, there are some population contrasts, and you can follow along by looking at the table, and then I'll point some of these things out to you. Uh, the Philippines has relatively uh, has a has, relative, has a relatively high growth rate. Laos and Cambodia have uh, relatively high rates of uh, growth. 
Thailand has lower total fertility from about 5.4 in 1970 to about 1.8 today. The Thai government has supported family planning for population and health reason. And the health reason is actually the high incidence of HIV AIDS that Thailand experiences. And I'll talk about this in a bit, but the re reason uh, for the high incidence of HIV AIDS in Thailand is due to um, the sex industry, uh, quite frankly, in this area. Thailand is, uh, is well known for its sex industry, for prostitution, uh, particularly prostitution of young girls and as well as uh, uh, young boys. Uh, and we'll talk more about that uh, probably in our third lecture on Southeast Asia. Singapore has a particularly low fertility uh, rate, and Indonesia exhibits dramatic, has exhibited dramatic declines in fertility, uh, which is a result from government family planning efforts. So let's take a look at some of our data here. As you can see, um, the largest country in the region is uh, Indonesia, has a much larger population than any of the other countries in the region. Uh, the Philippines uh, looks like it's second with about 94 million people. And Vietnam has about 89 million people, with Myanmar uh, with about 53.4. Uh, and then the rest of the other, the rest of the other countries um, have uh, fairly low populations. Our population densities, um, as you can see, are not too bad. Singapore, obviously, as a, um, as a city state, um, the entire areas uh, of Singapore is pretty much urbanized, and so it has a very high population density of over 7,500 people per square kilometer. Now, again, the way that's achieved is by building up, uh, because like we saw in East Asia, most of the people in Singapore will live in apartment buildings that are built upwards instead of living in houses that are built outward. Uh, and here's our rates of natural increase. And as you can see, they're not, uh, as I mentioned before, we've seen some significant decreases in these rates of natural increase over the last uh, decade or two. Uh, and so they're not too bad. East Timor stands out with a very high rate, about 3.1. Uh, Laos has a high rate of about 2.1. Philippines, 2.1. Um, I want to see Cambodia, 1.6, not too bad. Um, so... Um, the rates of natural increase, as I said, have diminished quite a bit. Our total fertility rates um, are somewhat higher um, than we might expect uh, based on the rates of natural increase. Um, you can see women in Burma have about 2.4 children, but look at East Timor, about uh, 5.7 uh, uh, children per woman. And then if we look at some of the other poorer countries in the region, we have Cambodia with 3.3. Laos 3.5, uh, Philippines 3.2. So we can make a generalization here and say that the poorer countries typically have higher total fertility rates uh, than the wealthier countries in the region. And we've seen this across the globe, quite frankly. Richer countries uh, typically have low rates of natural increase, low to total fertility rates, and poor countries across the globe typically have higher rates of natural increase and high total fertility rates. Uh, the percent urban is relatively low when we compare it to other parts of the world. So uh, a lot of people live in uh, rural areas. As you can see, Burma, 31%. Uh, Cambodia is only 20%, 22% in East Timor, Laos, and so forth. And so, again, we can kind of make the generalization that the poor countries of, in this region 
uh, have uh, most of their population living in rural areas, while the richer countries, such as Brunei, which is one of the richest countries in the world, um, has a higher rate of, uh, of uh, their population living, or a higher percentage of their population living in an urban area. And quite frankly, Brunei is pretty much a city-state in itself. Um, it's a very wealthy country, and its, its wealth is actually based on oil. Uh, young population, as you can see by the percent of the population that's under 15, not a very old population, as you can see by the uh, population that's greater than 65. Uh, our net migration rate, you can see we have people leaving this area, moving from Burma. Um, uh, it looks like East Timor, or I'm sorry, Indonesia, Laos, okay. Uh, Singapore has an, a, a positive migration rate of people moving into the area. Uh, it's a, uh, as we'll see, it's a very rich area. Um, a lot of uh, global uh, corporations have uh, branch offices there. It's an important center of finance, and it's also a very important port, as we'll see uh, when we look at the economic geography of the region. Um, so I want to move on and take a look at uh, Indonesia for a moment. Uh, you can see here we have an Indonesia migrant settlement in this particular uh, um, uh, figure, figure 13.15. Uh, and so I want to talk a bit about the uh, migration in India, or Indonesia, I'm sorry. Indonesia has a long history of what's known as transmigration. Uh, it's the relocation of people from densely settled islands such as Java and Madura to outer islands, especially to East Kalimantan. Uh, and the reason for this is uh, obviously the overcrowding on Java and Madura. Um, the social and environmental costs associated with uh, transmigration are actually pretty high uh, because what the, the Indonesian government is trying to do is it is trying to move people out of the crowded areas into the more isolated areas, and obviously that has social consequences uh, for the people moving to more isolated areas, but it also has environmental consequences because the Indonesian government um, is largely moving peasant farmers to these areas uh, to do agriculture. Now remember, we're talking about a tropical rainforest climate, so essentially what happens is the areas become deforested, the plots of land are used for a few years, they lose their fertility, then the migrants uh, abandon the land. And in many cases, they actually just return uh, to where they were where they were resettled from. Okay, um, so um, that's uh, that's what we see in this particular image over here. And as I mentioned, Singapore is a very wealthy country, as you can see. Uh, you know, uh, you probably wouldn't see uh, uh, the display of uh, perfumes and other things in other parts of this region of the world. Uh, and so this map shows you the uh, transmigration or the migration from Indonesia. As I mentioned, much of this goes to Kalimantan, okay, in here, in this uh, part of Indonesia. And also, it worked, uh, they're also sending people to Sumatra, to some of the less population, uh, populated areas of Sumatra and also out to uh, uh, what used to re be referred to as Celebes and now is Sulawesi out in this area also. Okay, uh, so and then you can see that the population density on uh, Java itself. 
So let's move on to take a bit of a look at the urban geography of the region. And this uh, image here is Intramuros, which is, was the original um, uh, Spanish uh, part of uh, what is today Manila. Okay, and then the map over here obviously is a map of the Manila, Manila metropolitan area. Uh, and Manila is um, the largest city, a primate city, in uh, the Philippines. So we have uh, a relatively low urbaniz urbanization rate, as we saw from the data on the uh, table that we looked at a little earlier. The cities in the region are growing very rapidly, and we do have primate cities in this region. They're very common. And if you recall, a primate city is a single large settlement that dominates all others within the country. So examples in this region include Bangkok in Thailand, Manila, as I mentioned, in the Philippines, and Jakarta in Indonesia. Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia uh, is the capital city. It was planned by the government and uh, uh, to be become the capital city. It's generally free of infrastructure problems, uh, whereas many of the other cities, because they are growing so rapidly, have um, serious infrastructure problems, uh, particularly with uh, congestion. Uh, obviously, pollution is a problem, and housing, providing enough housing, as well as um, other types of infrastructure can be a real problem in many of the other cities. Kuala Lumpur, though, is generally free of those problems. Um, at one time, Kuala Lumpur had the world's tallest building, which was completed in 1996, uh, called the Patronus Towers. Uh, uh, but, however, they've now been overshadowed by the uh, tower in Dubai. Uh, Singapore, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is essentially a city-state. Um, Singapore was actually at one time, right after the independence of Malaysia from the British, uh, Singapore was actually part of Malaysia, but it separated from Malaysia. I believe that was in 1966 that uh, Singapore separated and has its, its own independent country now. Uh, Singapore, because it is so densely populated, spaces at a premium. There are no squatter settlements in Singapore. Uh, as I mentioned before, most of the people live in modern high-rise uh, apartment buildings. Um, so this is Singapore, as I mentioned. And you can see Malaysia is right across the Johar Strait here. Okay, uh, And so you can see uh, this entire area. There are some uh, smaller uh, towns and so forth, but this entire area is uh, the country of Singapore as you can see. okay, And then, of course, this is the border between Malaysia and uh, Singapore. And now, it's uh, as I mentioned, Singapore is a very important port city. We'll talk more about this when we talk about the economic geography, uh, mainly because uh, a lot of ships dock here uh, to go through uh, the South China Sea and the Sunda Strait and so forth, where the waters are fairly shallow. So it's difficult for the very large ships uh, to go uh, to pass Singapore and, and continue eastward. This is Bangkok and Thailand. You can see very modern high-rise buildings, but Bangkok has its, also has its extremely poor areas. It also has uh, its squatter settlements and so forth in, uh, in the Bangkok area. Okay, so let's uh, move along and let's take a look at the cultural geography of the region. It's a very complex uh, cultural geography. As I mentioned, uh, a lot of different uh, cultures come together here, and that's why we often refer to this as a shatterbelt area. 
So some of the cultures that influence this region are the Arab culture, Indian, and Chinese cultures. And of course, then we have the, uh, uh, we have the indigenous cultures as well. Uh, just another generalization. Uh, on the mainland, we'll find uh, the major religion to be Buddhism. And on the island areas, uh, the religion is mainly Muslim. Now, the Philippines differs uh, from much of the rest of the region because the main uh, religion there it would be um, Roman Catholic uh, because, because of the Spanish uh, colonization of the Philippines. Okay, so let's uh, take a look, first of all, at our South Asian influences. Hindu migrants from India uh, started coming to this area about 2,000 years ago. They settled mostly on the coasts of Burma, Thailand, and Cambodia. Uh, in Central and Southern Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia, Hindu tradition um, um, is still found on the island of Bali and Lombok in Indonesia. As we talked when we talked about when we looked at South Asia, Sanskrit is the basis uh, for the um, Hindu religion, and it's also the basis for many Southeast Asian writing systems as, sec uh, as well. Uh, the second wave occurred in the 13th century with the diffusion of Theravada Buddhism. Buddhism is still practiced in the lowland areas of Burma, Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia. So as I mentioned, mostly on the uh, mainland areas. And of course, you can see these are Buddhist monks in their robes, um, uh, probably in Thailand, I would imagine, uh, in this particular photograph. Okay, now we have our migrants from China as well. Uh, Vietnam was actually a province of China until around 1000 AD. Uh, Mahayana Buddhism and Confucianism are still prevalent in Vietnam. Uh, Vietnamese used, uh, uh, used Chinese ideographs as well in its writing. Uh, the long migration wave peaking in the 19th and 20th century um, is the next topic that we want to take a look at. Most, China, most immigrants, I'm sorry, most migrants were Chinese that came to this area. Uh, some uh, returned to China. Others uh, remained and stayed in the area and uh, married local women. Uh, these women are sometimes referred to as Chinese mestizo. Uh, uh, like in the Philippines, uh, they, they would be referred to as Chinese mestizo. Uh, and in the Philippines, um, the Chinese became uh, the kind of the elite of the uh, socioeconomic, uh, on the socioeconomic ladder. When the Chinese women began to migrate, ethnically distinct Chinese settlements began to appear in the region. Uh, the results of this Chinese migration, relationships between, Chinese, uh, between the Chinese minority and the indigenous majority are often strained. Many Chinese maintain Chinese citizenship and do not take the citizenship in, of the country and where they live. Most of these overseas Chinese, as they're often referred to, are relatively prosperous uh, and they may in many cases, uh, dominate the economic activities in the local area. Uh, now we're going to move along and look at the arrival of Islam in Southeast Asia. Um, it, uh, Islam arrived from South and Southwest Asia in particular. Um, so, and this occurred around 1200 AD. Once again, uh, this, uh, uh, the arrival was mostly along the coast and the island areas. By 1650, Islam had mostly replaced Hinduism in Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh, today, the world's most populous Muslim country in the world is uh, Indonesia. 
uh, and we saw the population of Indonesia and uh, well over 200 million people and uh, approximately 87% of that population is Muslim. Uh, there's a degree of adherence to Orthodox. Uh, the degree of, of adherence to Orthodox uh, Islam is variable and it depends from place to place. It's relatively lax in Java, for example, and, but some of the other places, particularly um, in Sumatra, um, there's uh, some places where um, uh, it's, you can find very strict uh, Islam. Uh, some of the other religions in the region include Christianity and the indigenous uh, cultural religions. European miss missionaries uh, arrived in the southeast in Southeast Asia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, obviously, they brought Catholicism with them. Um, some brought Catholicism with them, particularly the French, in their colonies in this area. And the French colonies were largely located in Vietnam, Ca uh, Cambodia, and Laos. And we'll, we'll also find that this region, the French colonies in this region, are sometimes referred to uh, as Indochina because of the strong um, Indian and Chinese influence, or yeah, because of the uh, strong Chinese influence in, in those countries. Uh, Catholicism uh, was brought to Spain by the, uh, brought to the Philippines by the Spanish, as I mentioned. Um, animist religions in the region we have. Um, uh, if you recall from other lectures in other regions of the world, animist religion focused on the worship of nature, nature spirits, and ancestors. It's more common in the highland areas. Some animists have converted to Christianity. And of course, in many places, you'll also see um, a, a combination or a hybridization of religions as well as animists. Uh, as animus, uh, animism has uh, mixed with Catholicism and some of the other religions uh, that have come into this region. So this is uh, a picture of the current uh, religious diversity in the region. And once again, I think as a general kind of um, statement we can say, if you look at this, most uh, Islam is largely found on the island areas, as you can see from the green, and also obviously in Malaysia as well. Okay. So kind of, you know, obviously in this area, Roman Catholicism, obviously Christianity in this area. Uh, we have Theravada Buddhism, mostly in uh, Cambodia, Thailand, and in Burma. And then we have our Mayayana Buddhism that was brought in from China, uh, mostly in Vietnam, in this region here. And then we have animism and uh, in the highland areas, as I mentioned. Okay. So let's take a look at the linguistic diversity of the region, uh, also uh, very complex, as you might expect. Uh, we have um, languages from the Austronesian family, uh, which probably originated prehistorically in Taiwan. All the insular Southeast Asian languages are in this family. The most common language in this group is Malay. Malay is actually the lingua franca of the insular realm, of the insular part of this region. Indonesia used Malay as the basis of its new national language, Bahasa Indonesian, when it became independent in 1949. Tagalog is becoming a unifying national language in the Philippines. Uh, it's been standardized and renamed Filipino. Spanish and English uh, are also used, obviously, in the Philippines because of Spanish colonization. And then after the Spanish left, uh, 
the Philippines after the uh, Spanish-American War of the late uh, 19th century, and the United States took over the Philippines. Uh, obviously, English came; they brought English with them. So, Spanish and English have been uh, have been uh, administrative languages uh, in this country as well. On the mainland, we can find our um, Sino-Tibetan languages, which include Burma. I'm sorry, Burmese, obviously found in Burma. Uh, also the Karen language, which is also spoken in Burma. Uh, and it also helps the Karen to uh, uh, pro helps uh, provide a separate ethnic identity for the uh, Karen people as well. Uh, we also have the Austro-Thai languages, um, including, imagine this, Thai, which is, imagine this, spoken in Thailand. And then we also have Lao, which is spoken Imagine this in Laos, okay? And then we have some Austro-Asiatic languages, uh, such as Vietnamese, and I bet you can't guess where that's spoken. Ah, Vietnamese. Uh, Khmer, which is spoken mostly in Cambodia, and the Mon language as well. Um, so then, uh, let's take a look at the South, and so let's take a look at the map first. Uh, so you can see the Austronesian languages uh, are largely found in the island areas of the of of Southeast Asia. Uh, we have our Tibetan Burman languages, as I mentioned, in Burma up in this area. Okay. Uh, probably, uh, you know, diffused into this region from the Tibetan Plateau or the languages from this area diffused into the, onto the Tibetan Plateau. Uh, then we have uh, the Thai languages in this area in here, as well as our Mon and Khmer languages spoken mostly in, in Cambodia, as you can see, but a little bit up here in Laos as well. And then in, on uh, Papua New Guinea, we have our Papuan languages over in here, as you can see. Um, so uh, again, you can see some differences. We have Rangoon. Uh, this is in Rangoon in uh, Burma, or Myanmar, if you prefer. Uh, and you can see there's the Burmese script uh, here and here obviously on the on signs. So while we have this slide up, let's take a look at the Southeast Asian culture in a global context. European colonization brought changes. It brought changes in the governmental system, economic system, as well as the education system. After independence, some Southeast Asian countries tried to isolate themselves. For example, Burma, which still is, uh, is very isolated from other parts of the world. Others have been more receptive to foreign influences. Uh, the United States influence in the Philippines, uh, of course, uh, but that also has been contested. And we'll talk a bit more about that when we talk about the uh, geopolitics of the region. Thailand has, op has opened to tourism. And Thailand is really the only country that was never colonized in this region. Uh, clearly, the British uh, had some real influence in the area, but it was never actually colonized. Malaysia and Singapore uh, criticized the U.S. and Western influences in the region. Uh, and both of those countries were colonized uh, uh, by the British uh, as well. Um, English, uh, the global language, uh, it's the language of popular culture in this region. The uh, Malaysians uh, promote the use of their national language, however. Uh, business is done mostly uh, in the country, mostly using English. Uh, and the, but the Chinese minority actually preferred to speak Chinese. Singapore is promoting other national languages. They're promoting the language of Mandarin Chinese, Malay, and Tamil. 
Filipino, Filipinos are also concerned about the widespread use of, of English, and as I mentioned before, they're actually promoting the use of Filipino, which is uh, their national language. So that's where we're going to stop on uh, the second lecture on Southeast Asia. And when we come back for the third lecture, we'll take a look at the geopolitical framework of this region, and we'll also take a look at the economic geography.